Welcome to the next podcast in the series of Editor's Choice Articles from the JNIS. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the Editor-in-Chief. This podcast is supported by Rapid Medical, the maker of the Komenichi Aneurysm Embolization Assist Device. The Komenichi is the only temporary coiling assist device that does not require parent vessel occlusion during coiling procedures or the need for long-term antiplatelet medication for permanent stenting. The Komenichi is available in Europe and was recently cleared for marketing by the FDA. Please see their website, www.rapidmedical.com. We are pleased today to welcome Eric Peterson from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Uh, Eric is one of uh, the authors on a manuscript entitled Distal Transradial Access in the Anatomical Snuffbox for Diagnostic Cerebral Angiography. This manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the July print issue. I've known Eric for a long time and uh, admire the work that uh, he's done, especially with this novel technique. So. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Eric. Thanks so much, Philippe. Happy to be here. So, Eric, as I like to uh, do at the beginning of these, is to is to ask the authors basically to give a brief synopsis of the manuscript and its results. You know, specifically uh, in regard to this technique, what what prompted the change to the distal approach from the standard transradial approach? You know, the the as with a lot of this stuff that that comes with the radio. A lot of this ground has been paved already by the cardiology uh, group and the cardiology radio pioneers. Um, for them, the left-sided radial approach offers some anatomical approach advantages, and it's ergonomically quite awkward. So one of the um, uh, cardiologists figured out a way of maybe actually catheterizing a, a slightly distal location in the radial artery, which would allow the hand to be positioned over the belly and therefore obviate the need for the operator to walk around the other side, et cetera. So they actually went through all of the anatomical ways of doing it and, and some of the nuances there. And, and again, this is one of those things that I felt that uh, in addition to the hand positioning, which is less of an issue for us, there were some specific advantages to that specific uh, technique modification. And that's why we started exploring it. And that's really what the manuscript reports is our initial 85 patient series of, of uh, diagnostic angiography through that snuff box or distal radial uh, approach versus um, you know, what we had been doing prior, which is the traditional radial approach. It's around 85 patients we did. Um, and the main rationale for us uh, in considering it, and then now we've converted our whole diagnostic practice to this, uh, are a couple of things. Number one, the hand is, doesn't have to be positioned in an extremely supinated position. Sometimes patients have trouble with that. Some older patients can't actually even hold a full supination, and this allows the hand to be positioned neutral. And number two, it allows you to have a completely native and free traditional radial access site so that if you want to come back a week later for an intervention and you just did a radial access diagnostic angiogram, you're not puncturing the exact same site and you essentially have a fresh artery. Yeah, in my mind, you know, the conversion from the uh, transradial first philosophy really, I think, uh, means overcoming two at least perceived hurdles. And that's really the, the perception that the prep time and positioning are longer for the transradial approaches and really the fear of an ischemic injury to the hand, God forbid, you know, uh, losing a digit or something like that. So can you discuss those two particular issues and perhaps focus more on how you position the patient? You, you alluded to that a bit before, but um, how you arrange the room in fluoroscopic tubes and so forth, and, and most importantly, how you mitigate potential complications. 
Sure. So I think the room setup is no slower than a femoral case. Um, the transition to learning it and getting the text to set it up properly is absolutely slower. And there's absolutely a learning curve for you, for your lab, for your text. Um, but the technique for setting up the room for radial is very, very low tech and easy and doesn't have any increased time. It's just that you have to go from not knowing how to do it to do, or learning how to do it, and that takes a little bit of time. So I think that the actual uh, prep time being longer is, is not uh, not really borne out by experience. Um, and that's the same for distal radio or for uh, traditional radio. If anything, it's even faster for snuff box because you don't have to tape the hand or have some brace to keep it supinated. As far as complications go, um, ischemic complications are extraordinarily rare. I mean, they're, they're case reportable. And the reason is that the radial artery is one of five robust arteries that form this dynamic anastomotic network to the hand. And it's just extraordinarily unusual to have any sort of ischemic complications. That is, of course, completely different from, let's say, a brachial artery axis, which is an end artery, has nothing else there. And if you have a problem there, then you're going to lose your arm. The radial artery is not like that. And that's where all that safety data is kind of founded on. Um, I think one of the other challenges that people do think about, which I think is real, is that learning to approach the arch from the arm is different. You you need to, to, to essentially have a reverse mentality and all your psychomotor skills and mental roadmaps are all different. And of course, uh, sim formation from the arm can be different from, from the leg. And getting over that learning curve and then of course getting over the understanding of the catheters and the length and the support, that also takes time and involves some non-zero amount of fiddle factor that I think some people just say, I don't really want to sign up for that. Sure. So Eric, can you can you describe briefly how your group overcame that hurdle then? Did you spend time with the cardiologist? Uh, how, how did you learn these uh, the, the catheter techniques? Yeah, I mean, the, the two parts of it really are the, the puncture to the subclavian, which is universal to cardiac, body IR, neuro, wherever you're going after that. You're all using the same kind of access and hand positioning and room setup thing. So, yes, I sent my fellow to the Merit cardiology course. Uh, he was the only neuro guy there. He came back and was and told us, look, we are doing radial completely wrong. This is a total mess. Like, this is so much easier than we're making it. And just basically uh, got us optimized with the right hand position, the catheters, the sheath. Um, and the second big thing that he came back from there over the message from the cardiology uh, radials was that you really have to commit to it. Like there, there's no dabbling in it at the beginning and trying it for a case or two and be like, yeah, I don't really like this. You, you have to get over that learning curve and make a decision. And you really have to commit to doing, you know, 40 to 50 consecutive cases and, and not just kind of when you feel like it. Because in the initial uh, goings of it, it's just not that, fun. It, it's a little bit frustrating. The lab doesn't know how to do it. The techs are kind of complaining and grumpy and you're going to be frustrated and slower. <laughs> um, and you have, you have to just own that and believe in that. And if you believe in that and you know the right way to do it, then it's really much easier because then you kind of expect it to be annoying. You expect this short learning curve to occur and it, you're much more receptive to it and you just power right through it. And then after 40 or 50 cases, as they all say, it just gets better and easier. Everyone learns how to do things. Patients start saying things are nice. Nurses like it and all this sorts of wonderful things start happening. But that really doesn't happen immediately. So if you have to understand that, that was our biggest kind of uh, tick of success was that we knew that upfront and we just kind of wrote it out. So when are you not using the transradial approach now? Can you discuss some of the, the contraindications for its use? Yeah, I think for an upfront diagnostic, it's pretty rare, meaning most of the time, you know, we ultrasound, and unless there's just no artery there at all in the ultrasound, um, 
even now we're in those cases we just go ulnar so it's pretty rare to, to actually stick the leg for a diagnostic unless they have a fistula or something you know unusual in the arm for the interventions however you've already usually done a radio diagnostic so you have all sorts of information about what it's actually like to do a radio case for that patient. And there are definitely cases that based off of that learning, you may not want to do with that one radial. So for example, if they had a particularly small radial artery, you're able to get a diagnostic system up, no problem, but maybe they got into a little bit of spasm even with a five French and you think, look, I need a Neuromax up there to do this pipeline. That's probably not a great case for radial. Um, if they've got sure. some brutal you know, kink in the proximal left side that for some reason, the trajectory looks actually easier from femoral, and you need a really tough time catheterizing that on a radial case. Again, like that's probably not a great case to, to go radial. And of course, uh, if you had a complication, like if you perfed or something, uh, or you had some sort of issue with a diagnostic that did not go well, again, th those are all reasons to kind of consider uh, maybe this isn't the best case for, for radial. So has, has perforations actually, have you seen uh, a number of them? We, we had one recently uh, where it was obvious that we had gotten um, the glide wire out a small branch of the brachial and there was, you know, some uh, extravasation and, and the patient had a hematoma there uh, postoperatively, but it really was nothing that was difficult to control and essentially it was controlled with manual compression. Have you had those before and, and where along the course of the, the radial and brachial do you tend to see those if they do occur uh we have seen a few not that common I, we haven't had them in the brachial that's obviously a worse place to get it um usually it's just like you said the wire goes out some side branch we tend to roadmap uh every time now just to make extra sure that there's not some radial loop or some weird thing where if you went up blindly you may have a higher chance of perforating but you're right if you do perf which is rare it isn't that big of a deal you tend to have not a lot of bleeding there's not a lot of space to bleed so you just do a local compression the first time we perfed uh i remember we called vascular and made a big stink about it and they said what are, what are you doing man just hold a little bit of pressure it probably won't even it'll probably heal on its own not not only will the hematoma just stop it, it won't even it'll heal on its own and sure enough six months later we did a another radial angiogram and looked at it and it looked fine it was healed so Okay. So um, I wanted to discuss a bit also your sheath and catheter selections. I know one of the challenges uh, that we've encountered is, is going from the right transradial to the left vertebral artery. What, what modifications, what catheters are you using for that particular scenario or for other complex scenarios that you, you've encountered in your experience? Yeah, so I'm an impatient guy, so I really don't like using multiple catheters. I really want one system that has a very high chance of, of getting every single vessel I want, which meaning, you know, a proper six vessel. So there are different shapes and stuff you can try for different vessel anatomies. But for us, the SIM2 that we particularly like, the Terumo 5 French Black Glide Sleece uh, uh, SIM2, that is the most versatile and allows us to get the vast majority of patients a proper six vessel angiogram. The left vert from the right radial for a diagnostic um, where you need to kind of catheterize the rest of the vessels and you don't want to go left radial. Um, most of the time, the SIM2 will reach just to the ostium, if not right in it. And you, we always put the blood pressure cuff on the left arm and you can get a pretty good angiogram that way. If for some reason you need a left vert and you, your right vert ends in pica and you really need a proper one and the length from the subclavian origin to the vert origin is just too long for that uh, SIM2, we just swap it out for a SIM3, which has a, just a slightly longer limb and you can almost always hook it that way. Um, for the interventions for left vert, you, we would just go left radial for those. There's no reason to torture yourself. But if you're doing a right diagnostic angiogram, you need everything and that left vert, that's our workflow. 
I see. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Your manuscript mainly focuses on diagnostic angiography. Can you discuss uh, what are the considerations for using the distal transradial approach when you're going to use it for an interventional case? Uh, again, uh, if you could talk uh, a little bit more about uh, what kind of sheaths you would use, what you're comfortable uh, in going to in terms of sizing and so forth. Yeah, so the sheaths we use, um, the, the Terumo and Merit um, have these very nice slender sheaths, which are thin-walled sheaths, which is essentially a, you can get a seven French ID and what was traditionally a six French sheath hole in the artery. It's tapered all the way down to a micro wire in one shot. You don't have to dilate up or any sort of successive nonsense. It's all kitted together, needle, micro wire, sheath, dilator, et cetera. So we use those two brands. Um, the distal radial artery is a tiny bit smaller than the traditional radial, not by much, but it is a little bit smaller. So we've stuck to diagnostics for the most part for that. Of course, the cardiologists and a couple uh, colleagues up here of in, in neuro have done a large amount of interventions that way. Um, we haven't done that yet, um, just because of the workflow I mentioned. We do the, the diagnostic snuff box, and when we come back, we like to have a fresh artery, and we do the interventions on the traditional site. As far as French size, you should really be able to go up to a seven French slender, no problem, in most people, both for distal and traditional uh, radial access. Um, and again, that's not something we have done a lot of in the snuff box for the reasons we mentioned, but that's the kid and the sheath sizing that we're comfortable with. One nuance is that the distal puncture site is a centimeter or two, you know, longer away from where you're going. So you can get into length issues and a tall patient from a snuff box for a left-sided approach where you have to go across the chest also and all the way up. You can sometimes get a little bit shorter than you want. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that, that's for the interventions we're using in the traditional site anyway. Okay. Um, and how frequently are you comfortable going back through the same puncture site? Oh, every time we, we, we always intonate and just check, but it's, it's pretty rare. It, the, the key there is really to be careful with your hemostasis. Like that's how the radio occlusions occur when people just, you know, close the artery down for two hours and, and just take it off later. You really want to do that patent hemostasis technique that, that has been described uh, quite frequently in the literature where you just have just enough air in the little closure band bladder to keep everything dry, but uh, the, the bare minimum so that the artery underneath is presumably patent. They call that patent hemostasis. And if you're careful with that on the closure, you really are able to go back and forth. And I've had, you know, multi-stage embos where I've gone in seven, eight times, same radial artery. And if you're careful with your sheath size and careful with your patent hemostasis, it'll stay open every time. Wow. Uh, that's interesting to hear that. Um, let me just run over some of the, uh, the results, which I, I found uh, very interesting. So seven patients required conversion to the transfemoral approach. Maybe you can touch on, on what those points were that pushed you to the transfemoral approach. And finally, there were no complications from the, the snuff box uh, uh, approach, which I thought was fantastic and I think really speaks to the safety of this uh, technique. Uh, yeah, Philippe, so that, that's a good point. Uh, basically, there's no question that accessing the snuffbox distal radio artery site is a little bit more technically challenging. It's a little deeper. The angle is a little bit uh, more medial. It's not as straight. So not uncommonly, when we first started, we would get in no problem with a flash of blood, but then we couldn't get the wire to thread. And in the attempts of going back and forth with the wire, we ended up causing spasm, not only in the distal site, but then when we said, all right, let's just go to the traditional site, that whole site was spasmed down. So for a while, until we got really good with that, that caused a, a reasonable number of conversions to femoral. So that's just something that in the early stage, you have to understand it's going to be a little bit harder. And to your point about the complications, I'm not even, I'm not surprised at all, just because 
when you're doing the distal radial location, it's clearly even more superficial and even less room for any sort of bleeding or problems than the regular radial location. Um, the, the compression times you need, we haven't really gotten super aggressive with it, but the cardiologists and the body guys say that your compression times can be extremely short, like 10 minutes for a disoradial site, just because there's just a smaller area and there's less area for it to bleed. So again, I think it's probably uh, even safer than, than traditional radial. Right. Well, thanks again, Eric, for taking part in this, uh, this podcast. Uh, I found uh, your manuscript very interesting. Again, it's entitled Distal Transradial Access in the Anatomical Snuffbox for Diagnostic Cerebral Angiography. They detail their experience with 85 uh, patients, 78 of whom were treated uh, successfully through the transradial uh, snuffbox approach, again, with uh, no complications in this uh, study, uh, which speaks to the safety of the technique. So thank you again, uh, Eric, uh, and uh, my best to you and your group. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks again to the support of the journal. We really appreciate it. And this manuscript will appear in the July print issue of the JNIS and is currently on the JNIS website.